Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Please take up your Bibles again and turn to John uh, chapter 1. We're continuing our our series through uh, a week in the life of Jesus. And we're in John chapter 1. That's on page 886. Or if you've got a blue large print, it's 1054. John chapter 1, 35 to 42. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So... We're turning back to John 1, 35 to 42, and we have come, I think, to the third in this little series of studies in the first week of our Lord Jesus' public ministry. In John's Gospel, John, as you may remember, bookends his Gospel um, with a, a prologue and then an epilogue, and then the next things at both ends are two separate weeks in the life of the Savior, uh, one in which he uh, very quickly, although it doesn't seem that way since we're taking weeks to look at it, introduces us to Jesus and then from chapters 12 through 20 where he speaks to us about the last week of the Savior's life. And thus far in this week we've uh, looked first of all at the day before Jesus came when uh, John the Baptist looks forward to his coming, and then last time at the day of the Lamb, and this week we're looking at the day or days of the disciples, and we've come to days three and four uh, in this week. You may wonder why we have come to days three and four together. The answer is simple. It is because there's a carol service on the 11th of December and it's the only way I can finish the series before that carol service. 
But there is actually not just a pragmatic reason, there is an exegetical or theological reason for this, and that is that this little section, which covers two days, the next day in verse 35, and almost certainly the words at the end of verse 39 signal the fact that these disciples have stayed with Jesus overnight. So the tenth hour in the Roman Empire, the day started at six in the morning, the tenth hour, four o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, even in Aberdeen, it can be getting dark at four o'clock in the afternoon. If you live in a really, really rural part of the country, you ain't going nowhere after four o'clock in the afternoon. And so it very much looks as though these disciples stay overnight with Jesus And the next day, the next day is the journey to find um, Simon Peter. So what's the link? Uh, the, The link is that what we've got here in these verses really is a kind of chain reaction. It begins with John the Baptist's words to two of his disciples. It moves on. Uh, with those two disciples visiting Jesus. And then the next stage is one of those disciples going to find his brother in order to bring him to Jesus. And then the third stage really comes right in the very last sentence of the passage in Jesus' special address to Simon Peter. So a chain reaction Uh, the kind of chain reaction that spiritually some of us may also have seen someone has pointed us to Christ. They probably didn't say, behold, because you don't say, behold, any longer. You say, look, someone has pointed us to Christ. Our instinct has been to tell someone else about Christ. That person has come to Christ And is the case here with Simon Peter, that person's life has been wonderfully transformed. So there's kind of basic pattern that runs through this particular section in John chapter 1. And I want us to go step by step through this chain reaction. Um, Because there are some things embedded in this text in which, as we've seen before, John seems to be like one of those great painters who very subtly paints himself into the picture in order to invite you into the picture. And it seems to me almost certain that the disciple in this passage who is not named, the other disciple who is not named, was almost certainly the author of the gospel, John himself. Um, For one thing, he gives us very detailed information about the time this took place. For another thing, he has these little uh, kind of poke his face out of the page to say something to you. So, for example, in the conversation, uh, they say to Jesus in verse 38, Rabbi, and John pokes his head out of the conversation and says, "Uh, by the way, for you non-Jews, that means teacher. And then later on, In verse 41, we have found the Messiah. So, for those of you who have no idea what the Messiah is, that means the Christ. 
and those of you who are Greek speakers, which was the common language of the Roman Empire, you understand this means the anointed one. So we've got a, a rather dramatic account of encounters with the Lord Jesus, and at the same time, John, as I say, in this very subtle way, although he's not mentioned in this passage, is kind of looking out from the picture and bringing us into the picture because he wants us to understand, as I think we'll see in a few minutes, that he has actually built into this picture some very basic lessons about how the Christian life works. So, the first step is the comment that John the Baptist makes to his two disciples in verses 36 through 39. Um, I don't think it's just a matter of old age, but sometimes I find myself doing my Bible reading in the morning when I've not had enough coffee, and I kind of suddenly think, I think this is the passage I was reading yesterday. And there can be this kind of effect here in uh, verse 35, um, because exactly the same thing is said. Uh, John's now standing with two of his disciples, and he says what he had said yesterday, Behold the Lamb of God. And yet it's not exactly the same. Uh, for one thing, you'll notice the previous day, uh, Jesus was actually coming towards John. And then the gospel writer tells us no more about any conversation. Because what happens is that John points to Jesus and then he explains who Jesus is. The difference the next day with these two disciples who presumably had heard all this the day before is that John is not seeing Jesus walk towards him. He's actually seeing Jesus walk by somewhere. And he doesn't really explain who Jesus is to these two disciples of his. It looks to me as though he gives them a kind of nudge. Look, he's the Lamb of God. You know me well enough to understand what I'm saying. This is the time to leave me and to go after him. So written into John's words, and certainly I think this is vindicated by what follows, is a kind of elbow in the ribs that says, it's time for you to go. You have heard me now saying for weeks, I am not the one who is promised to be the Savior. You heard me say yesterday, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't need to go into all that today. There he is. He's the Lamb of God. Um, nudge, nudge. Go and follow him. But if that's what's happening in the, in the reality of the story, if you look down at the verbs that John the Gospel writer uses, I think you'll see something very interesting. Because what John sees in this narrative is a pattern of Christian discipleship. In other words, he sees these disciples as kind of prototypes of all discipleship. He's looking out of the picture again and he's, as it were, coming and standing beside us and he's saying to us, 
Just listen, friend, to the verbs that I'm using to describe what is happening here. What kind of verbs are these? And the striking thing is that uh, they're almost all discipleship verbs. Now, John's Gospel, like most books, is one of those books where there are clues planted in the narratives, and it's only later on that bells ring in your mind. You think, I've seen that verb before. I've seen that kind of thing said before. Oh, that's what was going on earlier on, and I didn't really notice it. But look at the verbs that John, the Gospel writer, uses. They follow. They seek. They come. They see. They remain. And these are all verbs that then flow into the rest of the Gospel in so many different ways to describe what it actually means to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Uh, It means to have some sense of who He is. It means to have something awakened in you so that you're looking for something that you don't have. In this passage, Jesus turns around and He says quite bluntly to them, what is it you're really looking for? And then he issues this double invitation. How are you going to find it? Come and see. That language recurs in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel in the story of the Samaritan woman that uh, met Jesus at the well of Jacob and she goes back to town having had her heart exposed and having discovered that Jesus is the Messiah And exactly the same pattern is repeated. Come and see him, she says. And they come and they see Jesus and they find out for themselves. And at the end of this narrative, they remain. Now, if you're familiar with John's Gospel, and uh, I retranslated that verb for those of you who maybe were brought up on the older versions, abide, Would that ring any bells? Or if you're just familiar with something like the English Standard Version, it's very interesting that that old verb is still there in John 15, where over and over and over and over and over again, I think about six times in a few verses, Jesus says this is the heart of the Christian life. The heart of the Christian life is coming to me and then abiding in me, remaining in me. So all of these verbs that John is putting into his narrative of the experience of these disciples, it's just so many different ways of saying, dear reader, do you see the pattern here of Christian discipleship? Are you seeking? Have you some sense, even if you couldn't articulate it, that it is as though someone is saying to you, come and see? And isn't it true that what you discover when you come and see Jesus Christ is this is someone who is home to me? I found home 
at last. And you remain. So, this is really, first of all, a picture of what it means to begin to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read this, if you are familiar with the other Gospels, the question may strike you, but this isn't the way the story is told in the other Gospels, is it? In the other Gospels, what happens is Jesus is walking along the seashore and he says to these fishermen, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So are these are these two different conflicting narratives as sometimes has been thought? Well, not, I think, if you, if you read them in the spirit in which they were intended to be written. This is not the call of these men uh, to become evangelists. That was the call by the Sea of Galilee to become fishers of men. This is their call to be followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And although it takes place in our individual lives in a multitude of different ways over different periods of time, some longer, some shorter, the pattern is almost invariably the same. Somehow or another, Christ edges His way into our lives, often through another person's life. And before we know what is really happening to us, we find ourselves awakened, as the older Christians used to say, seeking, dissatisfied, satisfied with our lives until we met this Christian in the light of whose life we found ourselves hungry or thirsty or deficient or angry or something new. And then the process continues when we begin to understand that the gospel is an invitation to come to Jesus Christ. And as we come to him, as the hymn we'll sing at the end of the service, we find in him a resting place. And he begins to make us glad. So this first part of the narrative is really all about what it means to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus And then, of course, it will feed later on in John 15, not that we've plans to get there. It will feed into, so what does it mean to go on being a disciple of Jesus? It means, as John 15 tells us, Jesus' words in his farewell discourse in the upper room, that we've been brought to faith in him. We're united to him. We live in him. He lives in us. And it's from that magnificent relationship of grace that all the fruit of the Spirit begin to develop in our lives and our lives are marvelously transformed. So if the first stage in the chain reaction is, begins with John's comment to these two disciples, the second stage in the reaction is found in verses 42-42a in which John, the gospel writer, describes how Andrew found his brother Simon. Now, Andrew is one of the hidden disciples of the Lord Jesus. In John's gospel, I think I'm right in saying 
He is named only on three occasions. This is the first of them. The second occasion is in chapter 6, where Andrew is the disciple who finds the little fellow with the bread and the fish and brings him to Jesus, and Jesus feeds the multitude. And then, thirdly, Andrew appears when uh, in the last week of Jesus' ministry there are Gentiles, Greeks, who have come up for the Passover celebration and they want to meet Jesus. Uh, And they go to Philip and Andrew, almost certainly because Philip and Andrew were Greek speakers. They came from Galilee where many people were Greek speakers. And Andrew is the one who initiates their coming to the Lord Jesus. Uh, One of the older writers who actually went to school in in the Shannonry in old Aberdeen in ye ancient days said about Andrew that he was the first home missionary and he was also the first foreign missionary. But the big thing about him here is that he went to find his brother. The first thing he did the next day was he went to find his brother Simon. Now this is very significant, I think, for this reason. That the big cheese in this story, the big cheese in this gospel, apart from our Lord himself, of course, is actually Simon. Andrew has these little bit parts. Um, People who are interested in antiquities try and find out, so what happened to Andrew after the day of Pentecost? From the New Testament's point of view, in a sense, you would almost get the impression we're not really interested in what happened to Andrew. Or maybe even we don't know what happened to Andrew. I think the really important lesson to learn from Andrew's life is, is not just that he went and told his brother, which was a splendid thing to do. Although you need to do that with some caution if you're a new convert, incidentally. The really significant thing about Andrew's life is that he was the link in the chain reaction to the individual who opened the kingdom of God by his preaching on the day of Pentecost and opened the kingdom of God to Gentiles in the household of Cornelius. And even if you are the most rabid Protestant, is certainly a man on whom Christ placed his hands in order to use him in a very distinct and special way in the ministry of the apostles. It's one of the striking facts about the New Testament. Whenever the twelve apostles are mentioned, there is only one name that is always the first name to be mentioned, and it's Simon's. When the three are mentioned, there's only one name that consistently appears as the first name. It's Simon. And when you open the Acts of the Apostles to see what happens at the inauguration of this new covenant community, the figure who stands out like a colossus transformed by this ministry of the Holy Spirit of the resurrected Christ, fulfilling his purposes in him, it's Simon. But This is what we need to learn from this part of the passage. There is no Simon coming to Christ 
without the almost anonymous Andrew bringing him to Christ. And in fact, this is a pattern that has gone on all the way through the Christian church. Um, I'm not going to do it, but I think I could run through a list of the supposedly greatest figures in the Christian church and then ask the question, by whom were they brought to faith in Jesus Christ? And unless you have an amazing knowledge of church history, be very unlikely to pass the exam, at least by British standards. And the fact of the matter really is that the answer to many of them would be nobody knows. And so Andrew is just a little hint to us of a pattern that we see all through Scripture and certainly all through the history of the Christian church that significance of service and ministry and fruitfulness is not dependent on fame in the story of the church. Either the church as a whole or the church as a local body. Actually, it's one of the privileges of being a minister of a congregation, the extent to which you find that the really significant people are sometimes the people that half the congregation don't even know exist. Because the hiddenness of their lives, the fact that their ministry has never been trumpeted, has one, never been their ambition in the first place, and in the second place, is absolutely incidental to the purposes of God. And so this is a very beautiful thing that uh, John, the gospel writer, does with Andrew when he introduces Andrew as the one who brings his brother to the Lord Jesus and does so by saying to him, Brother, we have found the Christ. Actually, the truth of the matter was it was the Christ who had found them. But if you're a young believer, you almost inevitably don't get the whole picture, and Andrew wasn't really getting the whole picture. Yet. And um, who knows what he understood. Certainly from the earlier verses, we know that he might have understood that this was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, and especially that he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. But if you had found Andrew somewhere perhaps 30 years later in Asia and said to him, Andrew, what did you, what did you mean when you said to your brother, we found the Christ? I think Andrew would probably have said, I'm not altogether sure what I meant. I, I, I hardly understood any of these things. I wasn't saying to him, you do understand, Simon, don't you, that when I say he's the Christ, I'm talking about his threefold office. Um, I'd read up on my institutes of the Christian religion before I came to see you. Uh, no, no, no. It's clear in the Gospels. They had a, they had a, they had a very inchoate sense, but they did have a sense. The big thing was they had a sense that he was the one John the Baptist had said he was, and Andrew discovered when he spent these hours with him that he could trust him. He, he was like the people in the Samaritan village later on who could have said to John the Baptist, 
now, now I believe not because of your witness to me, but because I've met him for myself and I understand that he is the one you said he was, although I don't yet fully understand everything about him. And, uh, of course, that's how it is, isn't it? Because faith in the Lord Jesus, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, is a person-to-person relationship. And you may be able to identify a person, put them into a category, but after a few hours, you you only begin to know them. But after a few hours, you may, you may know, some of you in your earlier romantic lives may have experienced this, you knew within a matter of hours, maybe even a matter of minutes, this is someone I think I can trust with my whole soul. One of the things I've loved about um, marriage services Um, apart from the embarrassing fact that as a minister, now that in all marriages the words are are really part of the liturgy, you may now kiss your bride and, you know, it's kind of embarrassing to stand three feet away from people as they're smooching at the front of the church. It's just... um, But sometimes I've seen young men uh, who have come to me and then I've seen it right in front of me and everything about them is saying... No man who ever existed loved and knew a woman the way I love and know this woman. And uh, if you had seen me at the front of the church during their wedding service, you might have noticed a bubble above my head and the words inside the bubble saying, I hope when you come for the annual checkup, you'll say to me, I had no idea what I was thinking when I thought that. I, I scarcely knew her. And those of you who have been married 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, you're still saying that. You're outside of the other person. You don't. But you know enough to trust them. And it's the same with the Lord Jesus. Uh, They were able to trust him because for one reason, they knew that what John the Baptist said out of his experience must be true. And for another, they now had conversation with him. In a way, this was their equivalent to our reading the Gospels. Uh, Wouldn't it it have been wonderful to have been a fly on the wall? Um, Or even a little snake looking through the window, listening. What did Jesus say to them? What did they ask him? Is it true what John said about you? Are you really the Savior of the world? Are you really going to take away our sins? You're the Son of God. It's amazing. We can't begin to take this in. But Andrew was able to say to his brother, Brother, we have found him. And we know and have experienced enough about him to trust him. And that's true, isn't it, from the very beginning of our Christian lives to the very end of our Christian lives. We may not have great theological acumen 
that would enable us to expound at great length all the doctrines of the gospel, but we've really come to know Jesus Christ. He is as real, indeed more real to us, than the people we know best and love most. And what we know about him is that we can absolutely trust him. And later on, they will hear the Lord Jesus say, listen, all of you who have come to me, of all of you, I will never turn my back on any of you. And that's as true tonight, isn't it, as it was then. So, the first link in the chain is Andrew coming to faith in Christ. The second link in the chain is Andrew witnessing to the identity of Christ. And then tucked right at the end in the last sentence is the final link in the chain in this section. And it's actually about how Simon is going to be transformed by Christ. And you see how this is the flow of discipleship, being pointed to Christ, coming to Christ, and then seeing people transformed by Christ. And this is such an interesting conversation. Um, There's another conversation that would be wonderful to have been a fly on the wall because Jesus' first words to Simon are, must have been kind of revealing and maybe a little disturbing to Simon. So, he says, so you're Simon, the son of Jonah. John and Jonah are the same name in Aramaic. And you remember in Matthew 16, that's made explicit uh, when Jesus speaks to uh, Simon Peter as the son of Jonah. Now, here's the interesting thing. Andrew's never called either the son of John or the son of Jonah. Isn't that interesting? But he's, he's Simon's brother. Why this inequality? Of course, these are the peculiarities in the narrative of John's Gospel. Let me stop and ask that question. I mean, if I've stopped and asked the question, you can stop and ask the question. I'm not super intelligent in reading this book. Why is Andrew never, ever, ever called the son of Jonah? I wonder if that was arresting to Simon. You see, I suppose from one point of view, when Jesus said, oh, so, so you're Simon, um, Simon could have thought, well, of course he knows who I am. My, my brother was spilling the beans on me. But you know what the expression son of means in the Bible? It means this is your characteristic. So when James and John are called the sons of thunder, what does that tell you about them? It tells them they had some struggles with their tempers. That's what it means. The son of perdition, what does that mean? That means this is a person whose life is going to be marked by damnation. Children of wrath, what does that mean? It means 
These are people whose lives are marked by being under the wrath of God. So what does Simon, son of Jonah mean? It means that Jesus sees right into Simon's heart. And the rest of the narrative tells us how accurately he saw into that heart and saw someone who would fail badly and who would need to be restored by God's grace. Simon Barjona, he says. And then he not only mentions that name that characterized the secrets of his heart, that, that Simon, Simon seems to have been one of those people who didn't really have a great deal of self-knowledge and self-understanding. Maybe never crossed his mind to think of the significance of his father's name in these spiritual terms. But in this moment, it's as though like a, like a thunderclap Jesus has got inside him. And then so typical of Jesus when he begins to take somebody apart, he doesn't leave them in pieces. Simon, he says, Simon, son of Jonah, you are going to be called Cephas. Aramaic word slightly uh, rendered in Greek. And again, John tells us the Greek equivalent is Peter, Petros, a rock. You're a Jonah-like figure who is going to become a rock-like figure. And it's an amazing encapsulation of what we find in Simon's life, isn't it? And you know, we all know, I mean, most of us here who have children gave our children names not because we wanted to list the members of the current Aberdeen football team or even worse, the Rangers football team, as used to happen in my childhood in Glasgow, but because we want those names to have significance. Where do we get that from? We got that from the Bible. And what's just as significant is change of names. Um, think of two illustrations from the book of Genesis. The, the change of name from Jacob, the twister, to Israel. And perhaps even more significant, uh, you remember when Rachel was dying and the child was about to be born, she said, I find this very moving, she said, call him Benoni, which means son of my affliction, my sorrow. Now, I guess most of us can only imagine what it means to have placed upon us the burden of the last wish of our wife about a child that's just been born. But you remember um, you remember what Jacob said he's not going to be the child of her sorrow. He's going to be Ben Yamin name we're all familiar with these days. The son of my right hand. Names are significant. 
And that's what Jesus is doing here, isn't he? He's prophesying. He's saying to Simon Peter in this first encounter, he's giving giving him, as it were, a little summary of the truth about Simon now and what Jesus is going to do with him to transform him. He's going to turn this Jonah-like figure into a rock. And we're familiar with how that's done in the other Gospels, but actually we see it very clearly in John's Gospel as well. So there's a moment of personal crisis sometime after Simon has begun to follow Jesus, when everyone is beginning to leave Jesus, and Jesus says, so are you going to leave too? And Simon is put into a predicament of decision. And he says, where else can we go? We've We've given our everything to you. You alone of the words of eternal life. And it feels as though he's got onto a new plateau of his Christian life, as sometimes we do. But there's no plateau that Peter stands on that's safe. And so as we get nearer to the end of the gospel, there's his refusal of Jesus' foot washing in a moment of pride and self-sufficiency. And then there's there's his rejection of Jesus saying, you're all going to desert me. I'll die rather than desert you. And then there's a moment of panic when he takes his sword and attacks one of the servants of the high priest. And then there's the moment of shame when he denies that he's ever known the Lord Jesus. And then right at the end of the gospel, there's this wonderful moment of restoration. And that passage in John 21 finishes very interestingly with Jesus' words to him. You follow me. You follow me. The verb with which this passage begins is the verb with which Peter's life ends in John's Gospel. Because Jesus' purpose in him is to take him to pieces and remake him and restore him and use him. I don't know if this is an age thing. I wonder how many of you watch the repair shop on BBC TV. It's the ultimate feel-good program for those who are over 60. Or maybe for those who are over 70. People bring in uh, heirlooms, family possessions, something their granny gave them, something that belonged to their mom, and they're they're, they're wrecked, they're in pieces. And there are these brilliant craftsmen. If ever there was an advert for not going to university but learning a trade, this program is it. I mean, just geniuses. And what do they do? Well, you know, the first thing they do is they look at the thing, and I'm pretty sure this is true, they see what it is going to be when they're finished with it. But they don't move immediately from seeing it to the fulfillment of the vision. What they do is they actually begin to take it to pieces. Like, you know, obviously I have no technical ability. The idea of taking anything to pieces that's complicated and then even knowing how they all fit together. And then they clean the pieces and repair the pieces 
And then once they've done the repair work, they begin to fit the pieces together and then they test their work. The other thing I'm not likely to do because I know pretty certainly the thing's going to collapse. And then there is this great moment of revelation when the cloth comes off and 95% of the people are in tears when they see this quite often relatively worthless object transformed into the glory that the craftsman saw he could produce. It's maybe the best program the BBC has ever produced, including the religious affairs section, that portrays how the gospel works. He doesn't work by just transforming you. He works characteristically by taking you to pieces and then putting you together again. Clean, whole, serviceable. And that's what these words mean. That's how they're going to be fulfilled in John's gospel. And John presumes you're actually going to read to the end of the gospel to see how Jesus is going to do it. So this little section of two days in the life of Jesus, providentially arranged for one night in the life of Trinity Church, but significantly for one night, because what we've got here is the whole story of our discipleship. And every one of us, of course, is at some point in this story. That's John's point. Um, we, we may be at the beginning of the story. We may be in some place in the story where we've begun to seek Christ. We may be at a point in the story where we've found Christ. We may be at a point in the story where it feels as though uh, Christ is taking our life to pieces. And what John wants us to understand is that Christ very clearly has in view. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows who you are. And the great thing is that he knows what he's going to do with you. And at the end of the day, it does not matter whether he turns you into an Andrew who disappears uh, from sight in the rest of history, or a Simon Peter whose name will be in lights in the story of the Christian church. That is simply a matter of his sovereign and gracious purposes. But what we have in common is this pattern worked out in a multitude of different ways. And the wonderful thing is that although we're all at different stages in this story of discipleship, at the end of this particular narrative, we're all called to exactly the same response, aren't we? That we can trust this Christ. He knows what he's doing. Hey, if he did it with Simon Peter, he's well able to do it with you and with me. So let's trust him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the way in which your word is like a mirror to us. And we thank you too for passages like this where 
the author seems to have polished the mirror so that it will be clear when we look into the mirror that we are seeing both a narrative that describes events that took place in history and at the same time we're being invited in to share that narrative, for that narrative to impress itself on our narrative and for ourselves. We are all here, Jonah-like. We've all run away from you, turned our backs on you, chosen our own way. Sometimes, like Jonah, the thing that has most frightened us is that you are a gracious God because our whole instinct is to do things ourselves and not to need grace. But we do need your grace because we are Jonah-like and not rock-like. We crumble easily. And so we pray you would help us afresh to come to this Lord Jesus, the same Lord Jesus that Andrew came to, the same Lord Jesus that Simon Peter came to, the same Lord Jesus that the author of this gospel came to and find that he is our home and our resting place and want to remain in him and with him forever. And this we pray in his name. Amen.